This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg. Welcome to episode 55 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, a global medical heavyweight who also happens to be South African shares her wisdom about the pandemic and how little we still know about it. A tobacco industry insider exposes how cigarette manufacturers are enjoying massive profits through South Africa's COVID-19-inspired ban on legal sales. We hear from the Rockefeller Foundation's Managing Director of Pandemic Response on how the political leaders should be adjusting their pandemic messaging to be better heard by an increasingly restive public. And with Gilead's drug Remdesivir attracting a huge order from the U.S. government, Big Pharma is now jumping at an opportunity to transform its profit-gouging reputation. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. South Africa's coronavirus cases continue to rise exponentially with Tuesday's increase of 6,945, the second highest yet recorded. It takes the national total to over 150,000 confirmed cases and moves South Africa into fourth place of countries with the highest daily infections, only behind the United States, Brazil and India and now slightly above Russia. South Africa also reported 128 deaths on Tuesday, by far the highest for a single day, with the total now at 2,675. For the first time, the country has entered the global top 10 in terms of daily mortalities. For the world as a whole, total cases are now at 10.7 million, with deaths approaching 520,000. Fears of competition between countries for coronavirus drugs are intensifying after the U.S.'s Department of Health and Human Services said last night that it had secured 500,000 treatment courses for remdesivir for American hospitals. This represents more than 90% of the production of the drug over the next three months. Remdesivir, which has proven to be effective against COVID-19 in human trials and is one of the two most promising drugs so far, is manufactured by Gilead, an American company. Oxford University's Professor Peter Hornby, who led the trials of the drug originally developed for use against Ebola, told the BBC in London that Gilead would have been under political pressure to comply with its government's request. More on the story later in this episode. Inside COVID-19, from Biz News. Well, one of the great things about doing this podcast is that you get to talk with South Africans who really have made big strides on the international stage. Amongst them, Professor Linda Gale Becker, who's Professor of Medicine at UCT and the Chief Operating Officer of the Desmond Tutu HIV Foundation. Prophet, it was interesting for me to discover your involvement with the International AIDS Society as a past president, uh, also that it organizes the biggest gathering of any developmental congress in the world. I guess the story now is that if there's been such a huge effort, more than 11,000 members of that society on HIV AIDS, is there any way this can now move across 
to the COVID-19 arena? Certainly, I think this is exactly what has happened. Those who are watching what's happening in the States will see our czar, who really leads the AIDS world, Anthony Fauci, has been appointed by the United States president to lead the COVID. And all around the world, infectious diseases doctors who've been caring about HIV have pivoted on a dime, literally, to take on the COVID question as well. And many of the resources and the foundations we built over many years, 35, 40 years, are also now in place to be used to make sure that we can hit the ground running with COVID. Urgency is the big thing with this pandemic, and and so there is no time to waste. And so I think in many ways that's the silver lining. We weren't completely unprepared. We do have people who understand infection, we understand infection control, and we understand the sort of societal impact of a pandemic like this. And I think that's been really important. In this country, of course, Salim Karim, who for many years has been devoted to HIV, also has been at the front line. So, you know, I think that has almost been the thing to do. Given your background and very close relationships that you have in the United States and on a global stage, have you been able to use much of that communication perhaps in a local sense? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think this has been the extraordinary thing about this epidemic compared to, say, 35 years ago with the AIDS epidemic. I keep I can't help drawing the parallels constantly in my mind. If you think about social media, 35 years ago was frankly non-existent, you know, and we were very dependent on peer-reviewed publication and newspaper reports. Now it is everywhere, and it's almost impossible not to be watching on a day-to-day basis. In fact, the big thing these days, as you know, is sorting out what's fake and what's real, and I think that's really important. I think that's an important role that people like me can play, is to try and help the public understand what is real and what is nonsense and what they need to be listening to, because they now have this incredible access to so much information. I mean, it's been a tsunami of information that's been coming to us. And the nature of the epidemic, of course, because it's been a wave around the world, we have been able to look north and see what's happened in the north. And in some ways, that's helped us prepare in a better way for what was coming for us. Because, of course, we were all completely in the dark six months ago. We had no idea. And even today, there's a lot of dark matter out there. There's a lot about this pandemic we don't know. And we're literally sailing as we go and, you know, learning as we sail, I should say. You know, I think it's an extraordinary, incredible amount of information coming in on a daily basis. What about the debate around BCG, the vaccination that we all have here in Mm. South Africa? Mm. We know that there is a trial going on in Stellenbosch at the moment. Is there any further update on whether or not this is acting as a prophylaxis? Interestingly, BCG is amongst a group of vaccine candidates for this action. On that list is oral polio vaccine, the MMR, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. And of course, BCG is there as well. So what the principle there is, is that When our immune systems work to fight viruses, we use a whole slew of different parts of the immune system. By vaccinating with something that isn't specific to SARS-CoV-2, it hasn't been designed to set up the immune system in an adaptive way to go for SARS-CoV-2. 
you stir up non-specific immunity. So other parts of the immune system that just picks up, hold on, there's a foreign antigen in the body. I want to overcome this. It isn't, as I say, directed at SARS-CoV-2, but it's other parts of the immune system. And that's what those vaccine candidates will do. So as I say, BCG is one of them, and there certainly is some biological plausibility there. Oral polio vaccine would be another one. MMR is another one. And we may well put those into our armamentarium. Of course, BCG is very familiar to us all. It's a vaccine that we use in our neonates to a high degree. We also have a lot of circulating tuberculosis, obviously, in our communities. So I think, you know, we have to do the human experiments to know whether it is going to work or not. That is the bottom line. And so, you know, hats off to the team who are doing the trials. That's going to be another piece in the puzzle. And we're going to have to quickly move to test these various pieces in the puzzle to figure out which one is going to be the home run. Is there any thoughts that you can share with us on why South Africa's mortality rates are so much lower than those Mm. in the other parts of the world right now? Yeah, so Robin Wood, my husband and I have been really thinking this through a lot to understand because they actually look like they could be dropping compared to, say, what was seen in Sweden. And it's not to think countries to the north of us have got worse health system or had less understanding. You know, I think there are a number of theories for this. One is that maybe we just have a younger population. We know that COVID is more serious in the aged. And, you know, perhaps the virus is encountering fewer older people um, in that regard. I think we have learned a lot more about the virus. I think that the honest answer is the jury's still out on this. I don't know. I've heard another theory that maybe the virus is, be- is in some way being passaged and now, you know, maybe more infectious but less virulent. I think all of us are somewhat in the dark, but I'm very relieved <laughs> that um, our mortality rates are, are much lower than what we're seeing, say, in Italy and Sweden which I think was really horrifying and certainly I think uh, got all of us very anxious about what was coming. Clearly, any death is one death too many. But, you know, I think the country has done an amazing job of setting up field hospitals and responding to the epidemic in all kinds of ways. So, you know, I think it's also important to remember history, the flu epidemic of 1918, you know, decimated, I think it was 6 million South Africans. We have lived as a humanity with pestilence for a really long time. And I think this is our lot in a way. Obviously, we have to try and be prepared in a better way for each of these pandemics, but I'm pretty sure there will be more in the future as well. As Professor Becker has just explained, it's a very good idea to keep an eye on unintended consequences. That's a suggestion which many have been forwarding to South Africa's government, which remains steadfast in banning the sale of cigarettes because they pose an apparent threat in this time of the coronavirus plague. But the vast majority of smokers are still smoking. And as you'll hear from industry insider Azim Karim, Cigarette manufacturers are the ones benefiting, making massive profits by both avoiding excise duties and boosting selling prices. 
South Africa's cigarette-making factories are continuing to produce, ostensibly for the export market, except that these are ghost exports. Nothing is leaving the country. The full interview is on biznews.com, but this highlight clip starts with Karim's explanation of how the whole scam works. So, ghost exports are the physical goods never go across the border. The documentation through various agents gets stamped as it was exported, left the country, and the physical goods would leave the bond store and get sold into the local market. Without having to pay excise duties because they supposedly were exported. Correct. You know this industry well. What do you make of what's going on at the moment with the banning on uh, legitimate sales of cigarettes? And we know that the smokers are still smoking. So what's going on here? What's, what's behind all this? All that's happened is cigarettes have become now completely illegal. So SARS doesn't receive any duties or taxes. They allow the manufacturers to manufacture for export. So the manufacturers continue manufacturing as if they're exporting and they're selling it into the local market at phenomenal prices. Anything that's illegit or unavailable, the demand goes up and the prices go up. So cigarettes that was sold for 70 rand and 60 rand for pack of, uh, for, for a carton of 10 packets is now being sold for 400 rand. So they're making unbelievable uh, margins. And who's they? All the cigarette manufacturers. Including the BATs, in other words, the supposedly legitimate multinationals? Well, the product is available in the market. So where does that product come from? Obviously, I don't have evidence of that, but where does that product come in the market? I mean, we're seeing it in the market. I'm a smoker. Yes, I'm able to buy my cigarettes. I smoke brand Camel. And if I want to buy the Camel, I'll make a few phone calls 800 rand, 1000 rand for 10 packets, which is, uh, which is 80 to 100 rand a packet. Before the lockdown, I would buy my cigarettes at 42 rand at any filling station. It's an extraordinary situation that we're in right now. The manufacturers are manufacturing. They are telling the authorities that they're exporting, presumably, but not exporting, and or what you call ghost exports, and those cigarettes are, are getting into the market and the manufacturers are making huge profits. I presume that there's a very, very strong vested interest on their behalf for the current situation to continue. So why did they go to court to try and end it? I, I, I couldn't understand that. I couldn't understand why would FITA go to court to fight it. Is that a smokescreen and butter? What was that all about? But at the moment, it's, they're making an absolute killing. Just to give you an example, I've seen mention of it in, within the industry. Guys are making anything between 6 and 12 million rand a day. As a second wave of infections takes the United States to fresh peaks, respected pundits there are urging political leadership to start singing from the same hymn sheet a powerful message for countries like South Africa, still stuck in the incorrect mindset of the economy versus people arguments. Here's Dr. Jonathan Quick, the Rockefeller Foundation Managing Director of Pandemic Response, Preparedness and Prevention, speaking to our partners at Bloomberg's Surveillance Podcast. 
Joining us from Duke now is Jonathan Quick, and what is so important about Dr. Quick is not only his exceptionally prescient book, The End of Epidemics, but also his commitment over multiple decades to looking at uh, the uh, epidemic turned to pandemic. Dr. Quick, what everyone wants to know is what is your solution for the political chaos that we're in right now. It's not much different than in Albert Camus' The Plague. How do you extricate yourself from the political chaos to end with a better medical outcome? Well, I, I think the first thing is that we need to keep persisting in, in uh, getting, the, getting the public, everybody, to, to see the reality in front of us and to do what works. Um, we're sitting here in the U.S. seeing ex- explosive increases, uh, with, with at least 30 of the states seeing increases, yet we look around the world and, and we, we see what works. Um, I, I think we've had the worst of, of pandemic communication in the sense that we have uh, our leaders, um, you know, not on a, on, on a common message, and that's, that's part of it. And um, I think... Right now, uh, we're on base of the Rockefeller Foundation. We're working to build an alliance of, com- of public organizations to get a consistent message out to the public yeah. about the viruses here. And so if the leaders aren't coming together, I think society has to come together. But keep pushing the leaders with, with facing the reality. We've got this pandemic. We know it will be with us for a while, and we know what to do. To, right. to, to slow it down. Your work included six years with the World Health Organization. You are a good filter of all the literature that is out there. If we see the case count explode in Florida to Arizona, do you just correlate that, correlate that over to a rising death count in the coming weeks? Well, uh, y- y- yes. With... with um uh, the recognition that the, the shift early in the outbreak, it was really uh, a lot of at-risk um, older people. We weren't protecting the, the most vulnerable. Um, so we're seeing now cases rise, uh, but the death account could, uh, at the point at the present time is is um, is is holding steady. So um, we will see more deaths. We will see proportionally fewer because more of the cases are younger people who don't don't die as often. But yes, indeed, we will see rises in death count as as the um, increase now most in the pop, in the youth gets filters up to the middle age and older. So yeah, I expect we we will see the death count coming back up. Dr. Quick, this distinction is so important, this idea that you're seeing the case count rise exponentially in some areas, but the death count not expected to rise as much and not rising significantly at this point. Could this be interpreted as perhaps these flare-ups not being as dangerous as the initial ones and being just another sign of a reopening economy, young people getting back into the workforce and managing through the virus to get some sort of herd immunity without necessarily a vaccine on the, on the horizon for the next couple of months? Well, I, I mean, honestly, I, th- I think that's uh, I think that's a wishful thinking in the sense that um, uh, w- w- it's a bigger outbreak, even if proportionally more of it is is in the youth, it's still going to uh, claim lives. The virus hasn't changed, and and I think one reality is it's not 
um, saving lives or saving the economy. We, that's a false choice. We can do both. But our biggest failure has been not to really reinforce those basic personal protective behaviors, which we know work. Distancing, face masks, hand washing, avoid uh, large gatherings. Um, I, I think there's an in-between where we, I mean, staying indoors for three months didn't change the virus. It's still just as contagious. And whether you, whether you start with a youth epidemic, because they're not following um, enough the, the, these personal protective behaviors, um, it, it will eventually continue um, and, and affect the whole population. So we, we, we do have to reopen. But we have to we have to do it in a way which really applies the lessons of what has worked in other countries to plateau at least the virus and and minimize uh, and reduce the deaths and 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 all of the knock-on effects. Dr. Quick, uh, how long do you think it'll be until we have a vaccine? Well, I have to say I'm I'm encouraged by the the vaccine work that's going on now because we have. Uh, we have a, at least uh, nearly uh, 20 vaccines in human trials, and that's exciting. And we've got a couple that are going into uh, the AstraZeneca University of Oxford one and the uh, uh, Moderna one. Bo both of those are going into uh, to the last phase of, of human trials where we really go on a large scale to test the safety and efficacy. Um, so I'm encouraged. Uh, that said, the whole process of scaling up production and all, I, I think we'll start seeing some coming out in, in the spring, as folks hope. But I don't see large-scale vaccine availability that changes things fundamentally um, until until the uh, you know latter half of, of 2021, as, as as folks have been saying since the beginning. I I think that hasn't changed. Uh, but I do think the speed has been historic, and um, and the companies are, are really looking at how to maximize production. Inside COVID nineteen from Biz News. And now for that story about Gilead, Remdesivir, and the attempt by Big Pharma, at least in America, to use fighting the virus as a reputation makeover. Bloomberg's Riley Griffin and Emma Court report. Gilead Sciences announced today that it will charge the U.S. government and other developed countries $390 per vial for its coronavirus fighting drug, remdesivir. That begins to answer a big question as drug companies race to find treatments and develop vaccines for the virus. How much will it cost us? But drug companies in the wake of the pandemic hope people will stop paying so much attention to the cost of medicine. Riley Griffin and Emma Court report that the pharmaceutical industry is hoping COVID-19 will give it a chance to rebrand. From price gougers to life savers. The drug industry is disliked more than any other sector, including lawyers, the gas industry, and the federal government, according to a Gallup poll. That boils down to one reason, drug pricing, which has increasingly prompted outrage from politicians and patients. The U.S. pays the most for prescription medications of any country in the world, 
in part because the government doesn't negotiate drug prices like many others, and the country's healthcare system is more fragmented. But the pharmaceutical industry hopes that the COVID-19 crisis will turn around its bad reputation. Here's Spencer Perlman, director of healthcare research at the consultancy Beta Partners, who has long been covering the drug price debate. A lot of Americans are now changing their mind, at least for right now, about how they view the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry was about as popular as mass murders uh, a few months ago. And they are, you know, their, their popularity, if you will, has increased pretty substantially. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, again, these are massive companies that when they want to can develop miracles. I mean, it's just it's a fact. That cutting edge science is what the pharmaceutical industry would prefer to talk about. Case in point, Michelle McMurray Heath. She's the new leader of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, a powerful trade group in Washington, D.C. Michelle's background is in science and regulation rather than lobbying, and she was initially reluctant to take the job. As an MD, PhD, former U.S. regulator, and most recently VP at Johnson and Johnson, she's the perfect representative of the new image pharma wants to convey advocates for good medicine rather than wielders of political power. I'm not a typical lobbyist. If that's what you're looking for for this role, I think you have the wrong girl. <laughs> you know, what I am is a person who understands and believes in the power of science, and I'm a committed and um, engaged advocate for science. That's what I bring to the role. And they looked at me and said, well, actually, our entire search is about changing the national dialogue. Michelle says she was convinced and saw the job as an opportunity to advocate for cutting edge science that would fundamentally change the lives of patients. Proposals aimed at reforming drug pricing could endanger that innovative medicine, she says. The industry has long made this argument but it takes on a particular resonance with the whole world betting that pharmaceutical companies can get us out of this public health disaster. It's been clear that in recent years, there's been a lot of public misunderstanding about what biotechnology has been attempting to do for for the country, for human health, for the food supply, for the environment. Um we are not among the most trusted quarters of the culture. And if we don't have a strong and vibrant biotechnology um, ecosystem, we are not going to be prepared to combat this crisis or any of the crises we are likely to face in the coming years and decades. It is the critical lever to move us forward. And I think that's becoming clearer now than it has ever been. The U.S. government has also poured billions of dollars into pharmaceutical companies for the development and manufacturing of new treatments and vaccines. That makes for even thornier questions about how much COVID-19 products should cost, because it's not just companies taking on the financial risk of making new drugs. It's taxpayers, too. The first test came this week with Gilead's remdesivir. The company came out with two price tags. It will charge the U.S. government and other developed countries about $390 a vial. 
Private U.S. health insurers and other commercial payers, though, will pay a higher price, $520 a vial. Gilead says most patients will need only five days of treatment, putting the total price roughly in line with a cost-effectiveness threshold for the drug set by an independent nonprofit called the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, though the cost for commercial payers on a five-day course will run somewhat over. In a statement on Monday, Steve Pearson, ICER's founder and president, said Gilead's price tag was, quote, reasonably cost-effective and, quote, demonstrates restraint and a promising precedent for future drug pricing during a pandemic, end quote. But he also said the conversation about remdesivir's price wasn't over and should be reassessed as we learn about how well the medicine works. This has been episode 55 of Inside COVID-19. The full interviews of the highlights featured in this podcast are available separately on the biznews.com website or the app. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until Monday, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.